Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look into the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Usually, of course, I'd happily be spending time on the air with you and with my lovely and talented co-host, Jeff Simmons. But for once, he is taking a much-deserved break. So this week and next, this holiday season, it's just you, me, our engineer, Reggie Johnson, and of course, some great guests who will be joining us in just a moment. So I know we're all getting ready for the holidays, and I want to take a moment to wish you a very happy and healthy holiday season. Uh, of course, that's going to be difficult for some people. According to the latest stats, we're looking at about 3 million cases of COVID in New York State with more than 58,000 lives lost. So this is going to be a very, very hard holiday season for a lot of people, and our hearts go out to those people, of course. Uh, in her latest statement on COVID rates in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul said today, quote, we're experiencing the winter surge and numbers are expected to rise. You can also expect to reduce your chance of severe illness from COVID-19 if you get vaccinated and if you get the booster. The best gift you can give yourself and your loved ones this holiday season is protection from COVID-19. So just something to think about there. And I know there's been a lot of debate about COVID vaccine mandates in New York and around the country. As we heard last night, that debate is now going to go all the way to the Supreme Court in fast-track oral oral arguments that are going to start on January 7th. We're going to talk about COVID a little bit later in the program. But of course, that is not the only big story going on right now. So we want to turn to our first guest in just a moment here. Recently, I had the very good fortune to be able to write a fairly in-depth piece about one of my personal favorite subjects, voting rights for Neiman Reports. That's a magazine that's part of Harvard's Neiman Foundation, which studies how to make journalism better and to train people to do it better. So if you've listened to Driving Forces in the past, you'll know this is a subject that I've really reported on extensively over the past 20, 25 years or so. And it's something I really care about. I think it affects all of us in so many ways, more than just who gets elected, who makes the rules and the laws that we live by. But voting and access to the ballot is one of the greatest civil rights issues of our time. Truly believe that. And there is a lot of misinformation about it out there. Uh, Just this week, I don't know if you had a chance to check it out, but the Washington Post had a really good piece on how allies of the former president, Donald Trump, still trying to challenge the outcome of the 2020 election, including spending literally millions of dollars to push bogus claims of election fraud and hacking and all sorts of things like that. So what I wrote about for Neiman Reports is how the press in this country covers voting rights, specifically how we can do it in a smart way that serves voters and defends the truth. That's as complicated as it is important, which is why I want to bring in right now one of the experts to help me write that piece to talk to us about voting rights here on WBAI today. So I'm glad to be joined right now by Grace Panetta. Grace is a senior politics reporter at Insider with a particular focus on elections, election administration, and voting rights. She also helps manage Business Insider's partnership
partnership with Decision Desk HQ and the site's coverage of live election results. She got her degree in political science right here at Barnard College. So, Grace Panetta, great to have you join me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much for having me, Celeste. It's great to be on. Thank you. Good to hear your voice again. I really enjoyed talking to you for the piece that we did uh, for Neiman Reports. But to get started, maybe just tell our listeners a little bit more about how you became so interested in covering voting rights. I know you cover a lot of things in politics, but why is this something that you really care about in particular? Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are election administrators and for us reporters who cover the machinations of how elections work, uh, none of us really expected to go into it. It's something we plan to go into. We sort of all fell into it in a lot of cases, and that was definitely true for me. And it really started when I was a senior in high school, and I got really, really obsessed and fell down a rabbit hole of learning about um, disenfranchisement of people with felony convictions in Florida which at the time had a very, very strict um, laws around that. And I actually traveled there and talked to people as a senior in high school and got completely obsessed with it and then didn't really put the puzzle pieces together that that's what I should do for a living um, until about four years later in the 2020 election when, you know, how we were going to vote and what elections were going to look like in the pandemic really became a major focus. Um, So it just I took it on and it's what I've been doing for almost two years now. Well, I think that's great. And I've really enjoyed reading your work over time and particularly during the pandemic, obviously, when uh, there was so much more discussion about voting by mail or absentee voting. Uh, I know New York State has uh, tried to revamp some of the ways it handles elections. And uh, we've moved on to things like ranked choice voting in in New York City. Um, You know, more broadly, uh, one of the things that we talked about for the Neiman piece, which was very interesting to me, and I'd like to get into that a little bit right now is you talked about fact checking these very broad claims about quote unquote voter fraud, but also about disenfranchisement, access to the ballot. You know, maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you've had to debunk and how you've gone about doing that. As we mentioned a little earlier in the program, you know, there are a lot of speed, a lot of people spending a lot of time and a lot of money to put out this idea that there was something wrong with our election system. How do you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a huge, huge challenge. It always is. And especially with election administration, it's very complicated. It's very technical. It's different, not just in every state, but town by town. And so I think you see both a lot of active, malicious disinformation that gets put out um, by political leaders and also just misinformation um, and intentionally spread by people who think something is true, but it doesn't tell the full story. And so I think it is a tough balance between not amplifying dangerous claims and conspiracy theories while also setting the record straight. And I think part of that is judging newsworthiness. Obviously, in 2020, uh, former President Trump was the president and the candidate for re-election. So I spent, and other reporters spent a lot of time going deep and fact-checking point by point all the wrong things he was saying about voter fraud and election fraud. And then after the election, too, when those claims were being furthered in lawsuits. Um, And now I think in 2021, it's been even a little bit more of a challenge. I think what the former president says is less newsworthy by virtue of the fact that, you know, he's no longer president, but he is still the leader, the facto leader of the GOP and his ideas and these false claims are influencing policy at the state level. So I think, you know, reporters maybe don't need to give more attention and amplification to just like crazy things they might see on an internet forum posted by random people. But 
if it's lies or misconceptions that are shaping policy or shaping the outcome of elections. Um, for example, on the Republican side now, it's a litmus test and a requirement for candidates to endorse the, the lie that the 2020 election was rigged or had significant fraud. And so I think balancing, determining, you know, what's amplifying something that doesn't need to be amplified and what's really providing the necessary context that's required for voters to make informed decisions. And it's tough. There's no easy answer. We're talking to Grace Panetta. She is a senior politics reporter for Insider who has a specific interest in and expertise in covering voting rights and election administration. Um, Grace, staying on that point for one minute, it's it's interesting when when you talk about Trump and we still do to some extent. I agree not as much perhaps as we did when he was in office, but he could be a candidate in 2024, exerts a lot of control over the party. And you and I talked about this when we uh, had our conversation for that piece in Neiman Reports about voting rights, but the Wall Street Journal not that long ago made a decision to run uh, a letter to the editor that he wrote, which basically was kind of a rehash of all the falsehoods and sort of murky misinformation points that he brought out during and after the campaign. And they ran that piece and they got a lot of blowback for doing that, including from you. Tell us a little bit about, you know, why you felt compelled to say something about their decision to to let Trump have that say. Yeah, and I mean, I often don't like to, you know, finger wag or engage in too much media criticism. But in this case, the editorial board, you know, as you mentioned, they published in the form of a letter to the editor, just a litany, literally just a long rambling bullet point list of either falsehoods, misconceptions, baseless or unsubstantiated allegations about voter fraud in uh, Pennsylvania, where um, Biden defeated Trump in the 2020 election and multiple courts. Um, did not agree with any of the Trump campaign's claims in that state, and they lost. None of their court challenges were successful. And the editorial board defended themselves in doing so and publishing just this list of claims without any fact-checking or context by saying, we think it's news when an ex-president who may run in 2024 wrote what he did, even if the claims are bananas. And the thing is, and this is kind of an important distinction between opinion in news, if they said, oh, well, that's his opinion and he's entitled to it, that would be one thing. But if they're calling it news, just presenting a litany of claims that are either debunked or baseless or are not substantiated, that's not news. Reporting the news requires giving fact-checking and context. Um, and they basically said, oh, we would just want readers to make up their own minds. We trust our readers to decide for themselves. And that's not journalism either. You know, journalism isn't a choose-your-own-adventure and choose-your-own-facts <laughs> endeavor. Um, if you want to do that, you, you, you can pick up a fiction book. It's, you know, a basic requirement of giving people the news. And it is respecting your readers to give them the truth, to say this is not substantiated. This is false. They made this claim in court, and it was not accepted. So I think if you're going to call something news, you have to do the full work of reporting it, which, by the way, the, the news side of the Wall Street Journal does every day. They do an excellent job. Um, so we didn't find that justification from the editorial board to be very convincing. And and first of all, I agree. I, I do think that the Wall Street Journal does uh, great reporting. And this is not, uh, you know, an hour of dump on one media outlet yeah. or the other. No <laughs> yeah. question about it. But, you know, and, and in the piece, we talked about, uh, you know, cases, both cases where the framing of a piece uh, of an issue within sort of the, the voting rights ecosystem can be right or wrong. And uh, I think the example, one of the examples we used, uh, actually the example to open 
second story was um, somebody talking about how there are always these sort of heartwarming stories about somebody who waited five hours in line to vote, somebody who waited uh, all day, somebody who missed work, you know, and they're saying, well, this is my obligation as a citizen and my my Mm -hmm. civic duty to do this. And the real question should be, why is anybody waiting five hours to vote? Um, But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, more broadly, and I think people would be interested in this, you know, you have examined um, voting rights, these claims of election fraud and and so on. I mean, what is your general opinion about how comfortable people should feel that the system is actually working? And, and how do you come to that that realization or that opinion? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think, you know, people across the country should be very, very confident in how the system works. And it's really unfortunate that the media has had to spend so much time fact-checking and debunking these false claims instead of focusing on everything that went right in 2020 and just all the amazing progress we've made. 2020, the presidential election had incredibly high turnout. It was the most secure election in U.S. history, the most audited, the most reviewed, the most paper ballots used in a modern election. And so people should feel extremely confident um, that their votes are going to be counted fairly because at the end of the day, you know, elections, I think what's so unfortunate about all these conspiracy theories and misinformation is it's made out our elections to be run by some shadowy forces. When in reality, it's your neighbors. It's your community. Elections in the U.S. are run at the local level. It's people in your community who you live around every day who are both doing that work year round and also serving as poll workers and counting ballots and doing all this work that makes up the fabric of our democracy. And I think that's what, you know, an ideal ideal world would get the focus and attention. Grace Panetta is a senior politics reporter for Insider. And Grace, looking ahead, this is kind of a little bit crystal ball stuff, but I think you have the the background and the knowledge for it. Do you expect that this idea of the results of elections being attacked or questioned or undermined. Is this going to be just the way we live in America from now on? Is is something sort of out of the box that we can't that we can't get away from now? Yeah, I mean, I really hope not. I tend to be a glass half full person. But unfortunately, that's definitely where we're headed for the upcoming midterm elections. And I think, unfortunately, we have an incentive structure that rewards politicians and figures who push these claims of fraud to earn raise money from their supporters um, and continue to rile up their base and engage their base. And as long as it's profitable for political figures to tap into that and to raise money off of spreading misinformation about elections and the electoral process, that's unfortunately where we're going to end up is this doom loop um, of a political party trafficking in this misinformation and this distrust, sowing distrust in the electoral process. And so really the only way it stops is if that ceases to become profitable, if that ceases to become a successful strategy at the ballot box. And I think only time will tell uh, which direction it goes. And we just have a, a moment or two left here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we talk about claims of voter fraud or allegations of massive voter fraud. And just to use the blanket statement here, which I often use and I think you often use in your reporting, there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the United States. But what we have seen and I think what reporting, including mm-hmm. some of yours, has borne out is that there are still a lot of people in this country who experience real sort of 
barriers to voting. And you've yeah. done some reporting on, on the Native American community. What did you see there in terms of how difficult it is for people who are entirely entitled to exercise their right to vote? Uh, how difficult that can be for some people? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, despite the fact that the 2020 election was so successful and had such amazing turnout, despite the pandemic, there are a lot of communities who are not fully enfranchised and are not getting the voting experience they deserve. And I think especially for Native American communities and rural communities, a lot of us who live in cities take for granted that we can walk to our polling place or at least drive there. We take for granted that we get consistent mail delivery and even have a mailbox. And that is not a given still for communities, especially who live um, on Native American reservations and out in rural areas and are dealing also with the historic, the dark history in the U.S. of disenfranchisement and voter suppression of Native communities. So I think even though there are all these successes across the board, it's important to shine a light on communities where that promise and those successes are not fully playing out and what can be done in the future to fix it. And just quickly, uh, since this was just sort of wanted to bring it back to that Neiman Reports piece that brought uh, you and I together to talk about this, mm-hmm. uh, any any advice for either people who are covering voting rights or people who are consuming information about voting rights? Should people be skeptical when they read stories about voter fraud or uh, election hacking? You know, how, how do you think people should handle that? Yeah, I think it's really important. This stuff is complicated. I've been writing about it in depth um, for almost two years, and it's it's hard to discern, you know, what's real or what's not. And there's a lot of nuance that gets lost there. And I think your best source for accurate information are your election officials, um, the election officials in your community and in your state. Um, they know top to bottom, the back of their hand, how elections actually work. And that's the best source of information. Perfect. And Grace Panetta, where can people find out more about you and your excellent reporting on voting rights and election administration? Oh, thank you so much. I am Grace underscore Panetta. Uh, that's P-A-N-E-T-T-A on Twitter. And um, you can also just find my work by just Googling Grace Panetta Business Insider um, or on the Business Insider's politics uh, page. Perfect. Grace Panetta, thank you so much for being here with us today on Driving Forces and have a great holiday season. Thank you so much for having me, Celeste. Wonderful. You're listening to WBAI New York. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Jeff Simmons is on break, but he'll be back with us soon. And I wish him and you a healthy and happy holiday season. Just had a great conversation about a really, really crucial topic, voting rights, with reporter Grace Panetta of Business Insider. And as I mentioned, you know, this is something that we've been able to talk about a number of times here on Driving Forces on WBAI. And I'm really glad we've been able to do that because I think that's a much, much bigger topic than just one show or just one segment of one show. And I want to remind you, before we move on to our next guest, who is also somebody whose work I have long read and admired, uh, before we move on to talking to our next guest, just want to take a very brief moment to remind you that we are only able to keep these important discussions going on here at WBAI with your help. Please take just a few moments today to go to WBAI.org and give as generously as you can to support this radio station. You can make a one-time donation. You can become a, a BAI buddy and make a recurring donation to help keep free speech radio alive and well here in New York. 
Right now, we're in the middle of a major fundraising drive to support the WBAI Tower Fund. So if you go to the website, WBAI.org, you'll see the big blue field there right on the front page of the site. You can read a lot more about the Tower Fund there before you make your gift. Uh, We're going to have something to listen uh, to very shortly here about the Tower Fund. I wish Jeff Simmons were here with us today, but as he mentioned, of course, he is taking a much-deserved break, which is great and very happy that he is finally doing that. But before he took a break, we made a very short promo together to explain to you why the Tower Fund is such a critical part of our winter fundraising at WBAI. If you want to learn more, again, go to WBAI.org and help us out today. But right now, let's just hear a short message about why we need your help with the Tower Fund. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. And I'm Jeff Simmons. We host Driving Forces here on WBAI. We bring you thoughtful conversations about what really matters to New Yorkers on politics and public policy. And we make time to hear from you, our listeners, not just during the holidays, but all year round. To keep these critical conversations on the air, we need your help. From now until New Year's, we're building up our funds to pay rent on our broadcast tower at Four Times Square. Go to towerfund.wbai.org today to help us keep free speech radio alive in the greatest city in the world. That's towerfund.wbai.org. It's easy to donate. It only takes a minute. Just go to towerfund.wbai.org. And remember, your contribution is tax deductible. WBAI is getting its financial house in order. Help us keep our signal as strong and as clear as our commitment to bringing you the best in news, music, and culture. Give to WBAI this holiday season. Be heard. Thank you, Reggie, for sharing that with us. And just a reminder that your donation of $25 or more makes you a member of WBAI. That means you can participate in important votes that determine the future of independent free speech radio in the greatest city in the world. And don't forget, your gift is tax deductible. If you donate before the end of this year, you get to write that donation off on your 2021 taxes. So give yourself a tax break and help this station. Please go to WBAI.org. Click the blue button, give to the Tower Fund. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. I'm your host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Jeff Simmons will be back with us in the new year. And I can't believe this year is almost over. I think we can all agree it's been really intense. We've had some serious turbulence from the ongoing pandemic and the advent of the Omicron variant to the resignation of former Governor Andrew Cuomo in a sexual misconduct scandal. Attorney General Letitia James decided not to run for that job against current governor, Kathy Hochul. Uh, In the city, we have a new incoming mayor in Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. In short, we have a lot to talk about when it comes to wrapping up 2021. So joining us now to help us unpack some of the year's biggest New York City stories and New York State stories is a newsman I have known and admired for many, many years. I was trying to figure out just how long I feel like we probably first talked in maybe 2006, but I will ask him to confirm or deny. Uh, Harry Siegel is an editor at The Daily Beast, a columnist for The New York Daily News, and a host of the podcast FAQ NYC, Harry Siegel. So glad you can join us today here on Driving Forces. Hey, Celeste, so glad to be here. What a year. 
I know, really. Well, if uh, if that could fill up the rest of the hour, I think it it would be the most concise way to sum it up. But um, let's let's take it apart a little bit. Let's let's relive the magic, the mystery, the majesty. Um, I think when we were getting ready to do the show, you said there were, you know, I said, what are we going to talk about? And you said, well, you know, maybe the two big C's, COVID, Cuomo, you know, I think that's a good place to start. Which one you want to do first, man? Oh, let's talk about uh, COVID as, as, you know, we're looking again at schools potentially. Sorry. Uh, we're looking at schools uh, potentially, and you can hear how this could be problematic for working journalists. Uh, 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 shutting down. Uh, this mayor says that's not happening. The incoming mayor says he doesn't want to do that. The governor says that. But the infection numbers are spiking up. The uh, school's chancellor, Mike Mulgrew, says uh, we need more testing if, if this is going to keep working. And you, you can feel the pressure building again uh, just after a semester of relative normalcy. Uh, it's, it, that has been quite the yo-yo. And, of course, we had a whole mayor's race that took place in the shadow of the outbreak. Um, and, and, you know, with, with Zoom debates instead of in-person ones, uh, with Andrew Yang being the one guy who went out and campaigned hard in person and promptly caught COVID, uh, it, it's, it, it's overshadowed everything and yet been very difficult to talk about. And behind all that, of course, you have the fact that the, the city is still functioning in some sense, uh, because we got a massive infusion of federal aid, which incidentally we likely would not have gotten if Donald Trump had not thrown a temper tantrum after uh, after the election and uh, cost his party those Senate seats in Georgia, potentially, um, meaning Republicans would have controlled the Senate and that cash wouldn't have got here. But it did, and it's bought time. Uh, but it's not clear that we've done all that much with that time. Bill de Blasio had actually been closing testing sites just a couple of months ago as he's now frantically trying to ramp them back up. So, I mean, it's just been dizzying with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with you on on every every level there. And, and that's interesting, uh, you know, just uh, looking for testing, trying to find this testing capacity. You've got to wonder, like, is that going to be the answer? Is this the way we're living? Because, uh, you know, I was I was looking at a piece the other day that said basically like um, initially the idea of getting ahead of all this was to stop the spread, flatten the curve, these phrases that we heard over and over again. And, you know, you got to wonder to some extent, like, is that is that just over? Is you know, do you feel like this is the way we're living right now? Um, and do you think our public officials have accepted that just COVID is here to stay and there really isn't much we can do um, besides, uh, you know, be happy with the people who are already vaccinated? Do you feel like we've hit sort of a plateau in New York with how many people are, are going to take this seriously, are going to mask, are going to vaccinate? Or have we reached everybody that we can reach? I mean, there are real signs of that. Um, there, there's no popular support or political support for shutting things down again. Uh, although uh, uh, the public advocate who's running for governor, Jumani Williams, did say we should close the schools. Nobody else has signed on. Uh, I don't think there's any support for, for a broader shutdown. Uh, we have vaccines now. We, we have therapeutics, a good deal more experience. There's signs that this new variant uh, may be, uh, although this is not resolved, less severe um, and, and so hopefully we're not thinking about flattening the curve again. But you think about that uh, when you're concerned that this is just going to overwhelm the rest of the uh, is going to overwhelm the medical system. 
And that did happen last year in New York City, in Italy, in a whole lot of places. And that's its own sort of disaster, uh, group disaster, and, and obviously one that impacts many individual lives. And, and not just people who have this virus, but uh, people people who are suffering from cancer and have, have um, important surgeries scheduled and so on. So there's a hope that we're not going to hit that bump again, and, and we can sort all this out. Um, and, 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 and move forward from there. But this all seems very amorphous and speculative. And behind all that, of course, and this is a big deal for New York, is the question of when are people going to get back to their offices? How often are they going to be there? What is all this real estate worth now? Uh, and, you know, this is not the $64,000 question. This is more like the $64 billion question in New York, and we really don't know the answer. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're talking about the biggest New York stories of 2021 with our special guest, Harry Siegel of The Daily Beast, The Daily News, and FAQ NYC. Uh, Harry, so let's get uh, for a moment over here. Let's shift over to the other big C story, of course. That was the Andrew Cuomo story. Uh is that sort of officially in our rearview mirror? Because there, you know, there was a huge takedown there. Obviously, even uh, his brother uh, no longer appearing on CNN. Do you think we've seen the last of the Cuomos or uh, Andrew Cuomo? At least, what what's going to happen there? That we are all we are all tuned in to see. I don't believe that Andrew Cuomo knows what else to do, other than be in public life in New York and part of its politics. And I think he's at a bit of a loss for how to reestablish himself. Uh, I think Tish James leading the governor's race uh, is very interesting in relation to all this. Uh, obviously, she, she helped remove Cuomo with the, the report from her office uh, that outside counsel conducted uh, about all these harassment claims against him. And, and he has a massive war chest he left with since, you know, you don't lose your campaign funds when you resign. And, and, and what happens next is just absolutely fascinating to see. It's also been interesting to see Hochul, who's much more concerned, I think, with the Democratic primary than the general election, simultaneously try to tack left in certain ways, but also uh, uh, hold the center that Cuomo had, uh, had, had represented in others. I, I think we'll get a lot more clarity as, as to what's happening with our new governor now and, and someone who may well be governor for the next four years after this one, after this coming one. Um, when, when she goes through this one budget process, which is when a lot gets decided in Albany, that's sort of the moment of truth. She hasn't been through it yet. And she has one of those before the primary, which, of course, has now moved up to June. So so this is all very new uh, uh, sort of set of political realities. But it's also actually pretty late in the game already for, for, for people to emerge and potentially challenge her. And I, th- I think as the, the state's first uh, woman governor, um, the, 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 and, and a Democrat uh, who's not alienated everyone in the ways Cuomo had. She, she's actually in a, a very strong position. And I'm sure that the person who is most broken up uh, inside about the departure of Andrew Cuomo, at least temporarily from public life, got to be Bill de Blasio. I know that the the, the heartwarming relationship between those two guys, uh, you know, is is one for the ages. Um, but, you know, being being kind of facetious there, but they, they had a, uh, a storied relationship, to say the least. Um, wondering what you think, Harry Siegel, of... Bill de Blasio's legacy. We have a new incoming mayor, Eric Adams, and I want to ask you about him, too. But uh, 
what, how do you think history or uh, historians like yourself uh, are going to remember Bill de Blasio as mayor of New York? He's going to be the, the, the mayor, the first mayor in a while who left the next mayor with a much more difficult uh, hand uh, than he'd inherited when he came in. Um, I, I think Bill de Blasio is leaving a, a, a fraught city for Eric Adams, one that has uh, uh, financial strains looming, uh, one where, where there's a significant sense over the last two years of, of both disorder uh, and rising crime, uh, one that, 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 that uh, is, is unbalanced. And he can point to pre-K, and that's a big accomplishment. Uh, he can say that, that he did some corrections that were necessary after 12 years of Bloomberg and 20 years of non-democratic mayors, and that's true. But it is striking that, that, that this transfer of power from one Democrat to another and from two allies in uh, Bill de Blasio and Eric Adams is, uh, is, is so messy. And in fact, the most recent messy example that you compared to is the last time one Democrat gave power to another, did not mean to. Ed Koch to David Dinkins after Dinkins beat Koch in a primary as Koch intended to win a fourth term uh, when the city was just in much worse financial condition than almost anyone appreciated than had been publicly reported. And Dinkins came in and, and almost immediately realized what, what, what a messy hand he'd been dealt and, uh, and struggled massively to, uh, uh, to deal with that. And as far as, uh, uh, you know, what do you think Eric Adams is going to have to do to clean up some of these problems? Uh, you know, he's got COVID going on. He's got uh, crime going on. He's got lots of things going on. Are, are you getting any sense of, you know, is there something that he's really going to be focused on first to try to make an impact? Or is it, is it just keeping all the plates in the air all the time? It's crime, and it's going to be almost really like in certain ways, although I don't think either man would appreciate that comparison <laughs> necessarily. Um, this is the one place where accidentally de Blasio has left a low-hanging fruit, if you will, for Adams. De Blasio disbanded the, uh, uh, the, the gun unit. In effect, uh, Adams is going to put that back together. Uh, there's clearly places where, where, where more competence and, and better focused enforcement can make a an, an immediate difference, both in the uh, numbers and in the feel of the city. Uh, Adams, I think, is very well equipped uh, to to show fairly immediate results, and he's somebody who's stressed. Like his line is that that safety is the prerequisite to prosperity, um, and, and I, I think that that having committed effectively to making things be safer and feel safer, which are not exactly the same. Mm. Uh, that, that he will focus a significant amount of, of his early efforts there. And I think if he does so, he'll, he'll buy himself a little time and space with everything else. Although, of course, it's a job where whatever you think you're dealing with, you know, surprise, you're dealing with 22 other things not of your choosing at the same time. And Harry Siegel, before we sign off for today, I'm really glad to have you here on the program. And I want you to just take a moment to tell people who are listening today about FAQ NYC and uh, what type of podcast it is and, and why they should listen. <laughs> FAQ.NYC, if you'd like to find it on the interwebs, is uh, a podcast where a bunch of people, including uh, myself, uh, Fordham professor of political science, Christina Greer, uh, Katie Honan of the city and uh, Alex uh, Brooklyn of uh, the village, uh, you know, talk to 
smart and interesting New Yorkers and each other about what's happening and try to make some sense of all this. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Uh, but it is, uh, I think, sometimes worth listening to. And I hope that you uh, give it a shot. Perfect. Harry Siegel of The Daily Beast, The Daily News and FAQ NYC. Always a pleasure to have you here on the program. Look forward to listening to your program in the coming year. Thank you so much. Thanks, Celeste. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and we just ran down some of the biggest New York stories of the year with Harry Siegel uh, of the Daily Beast, the Daily News, and FAQ NYC. I do encourage you to listen to his show. Uh, he does that program with Christina Greer and uh, Alex Brooklyn, and they put on a really good program, really interesting stuff about New York City. If you care about New York City, and clearly you do if you're listening to this program, uh, check it out, FAQNYC. So coming up, we're going to give you your big chance to weigh in on the news of the day here, the news of this show. 212-209-2877 is going to be the number to call 212-209-2877. What was the biggest news story of the year for you? Was it crime? Was it COVID? Was it Cuomo? Lots of things going on. Uh, what did you think about what we heard from today's guests? So we had Grace Panetta of Business Insider on voting rights and Harry Siegel on the year in news. Uh, what do you think is waiting around uh, the corner for us in 2022? 212-209-2877 is the number to call. We're going to go to a music break and maybe while we're doing that and while you're calling in, also check out WBAI.org and give to the Tower Fund. We can always use your help and we appreciate it. Help keep free speech radio alive here in New York City. Go to WBAI.org and give to the Tower Fund. Going to take a quick break. We will be right back with your calls.
Staples Singers here on WBAI New York. I'm Celeste katz Morrison. and you're listening to Driving Forces. And right now we're going to get to your calls. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. What mattered to you in 2021 and what are you hoping for in 2022? We're going to go to the phones right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? up in White Plains, Celeste. How you doing today? I'm fine. Hey, uh, Celeste, are you and Jeff down in the studio at, at Atlantic Avenue, or are you remote? We are remote. Because I'd like to send in money, but I only like to send it to, you know, to, to people who will be there to receive mail. So I hope you come down to the studio soon. What I wanted to ask was two questions, though, and I'm sorry, Grace, is, is that name Panetta? Is that the Leon Panetta, Grace, or is that just the common Panetta? I think this is I think this is just Grace the senior politics reporter. Okay, she's not related to Leon, huh? Not that I know of. Cuz I wanted to ask her if she considered the, you know, the Russian conspiracy claims against Trump a case of malicious misinformation. And uh, the second thing I'd like to ask you, I was going to ask her is if you can see how she said quote the that it was an amazing turnout, and the proof that the election was legitimate was there was a record number of ballots sent out and a record number of ballots returned. But to somebody like me, with these two very unappealing candidates, a lot of people, I would think, wouldn't like either one of them and would stay home. So it's, I don't understand why she thinks... It's, it's a, a, a legitimizing evidence that there was a huge turnout, most in 100 years, right, Celeste? But these two people are very unappealing. And I just wonder if you can see how other people might see it in a different way. Well, I, and thank you. Thank you, Russ, for your call. I think that, look, uh, people are, if the people are voting for a candidate because they're excited for that candidate, or they're voting because it's the, the lesser of two evils, or, or they're flipping a coin, whatever the case may be. I think the point that Grace was trying to make, and I don't want to speak for her, but I think the idea was that under extremely, extremely difficult circumstances, logistical issues, confusion, lack of information, uh, disinformation, misinformation, that people were still able to to do everything that they did to get out there and participate in the process, regardless of how difficult it was, regardless of how different it was, regardless of whether they were happy with the candidates or not. And this is a question that we were talking about in the broader context of how we cover, how the media covers voting rights, uh, disenfranchisement, and allegations of fraud. So I hope that answers your question, Russ, but we're going to move on. And if you are waiting, please hold on. We'll try to get to as many of your calls as we can, too. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. You're listening to Driving Forces. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Oh, hi. Yes, it's Joan from Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Um, hi, hi, Celeste. Um, I'm very upset with Eric Adams already, and I won't even, I won't even deal with the solitary confinement issue because that's getting a lot of attention elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But what's not getting attention, um, I heard a name mentioned, and I was very disappointed. If I'm right in what I heard, he has appointed or is using as a health care advisor a woman named Karen. Does that name ring a bell to you? I'm sorry, it was a little. I it was a little shorted out. Give me, um, give me the name one more time. 
Karen Ingrassi. I don't know how she spells it. I N E N. I'm not sure. But if I'm not mistaken, I know that name, and I think she has been either a lobbyist or the actual head of the health insurance. Uh, what is it? H I A. Health Insurance Industries of America, whatever that's called. Uh, she is a very, very eloquent apologist for the health insurance industry, and I am very disturbed to think that that is who Eric Adams has chosen to advise him or to have an actual position in the administration. Do you, do you know uh, what she has been? Is she's an advisor, or what? What her name? Why her name came up in the news the other day? Do you know anything um, about it? You know, I am not. I am not that familiar with her. I'm sure that there are people who are, and I hate to be sort of not helpful, but that's something that we can well, look into. Okay. I think when we. Oh no, that's no problem. I'm. I'm glad. I'm always happy to uh, hear a question, even if I cannot always answer it. I think that the um, the Adams administration, to some extent, is still sort of. Uh, under under construction, under development. So, and there there are people who will be would have anything to do with her. I mean, I know some people were hoping, and I think you've done a show on this. And a couple of shows have been done on BI on this. The the city workers who feel very betrayed by De Blasio taking away their protection their, for the twenty percent payment that they have to join Medicare, as Ralph Nader refers to, disadvantaged programs. Oh. And some were having some hope that Eric Adams would, because he could reverse it, a stroke of the pen, he could reverse it. But if he's being advised by Karen and Grassi, and if she's who I think she is, that she was the head of the health insurance industry of America, she is not, he is not going to be reversing anything that's going to harm uh, insurance companies. So I, well, I know you and Jack will be doing shows on, on all the people that he's appointing and whatnot, right? Yeah, we will be, and and yeah. I do I do I do appreciate it. I do thank you for your call. And we actually healthcare is a, a, an issue that we are going to be bringing up in the new year. We've had a number of people call in and ask us uh, to do programs on uh, healthcare, on health insurance, and so on. And we're definitely very interested in hearing from people about what you'd like us to explore on this program. Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. We have time for a few more calls. But uh, if there is something that you'd like to hear us find experts on, do a program on, take calls on, very interested to hear, give us a call 212-209-2877. I believe we have uh, another caller on the line, WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Yeah, hello. This is Doug, Doug in the Bronx. Um, I don't have a specific topic of uh, statement for this topic. I'm just going to comment on Two calls ago, Russ Russell, um, and and I know he participated uh, an hour ago in the uh, report to the Lister. Also, um, he made a statement uh, um, uh, commending the previous resident of the White House. Nothing could be more untrue. Donald Dump was is practically a treasonous wretch. I mean, he, this is a very dangerous man. Just. Read. This is the message I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Just read the Mueller report. The Mueller report tells you this guy was treasonous. M- Robert Mueller is a Republican, not a Democrat. His his committee was as objective as conceivable. It is totally revealed that Donald Trump is essentially a traitor to the United States. Maybe. Some people can think that Vladimir Putin 
of, of Russia is somehow a good guy. No, this was a totally uh, – the 2016 election is the election that was possibly a fraudulent election, not the 2020 presidential election. And, and Doug, are you are you concerned about uh, whether he runs again and what happens <laughs> if he runs again? Yeah, that's well, that's possibly true. Yeah, yeah. There's something there's something very horrible about the Republican Party or the so-called Republican Party in this country. It, it is a truly um, a, a it's a group of people that are utterly desperate for self. Um, Self-preservation. That's all that they care about. You know, you know who said this months and months ago? David Brooks of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. David Brooks really knows. He's a conservative. He calls himself a conservative. Um, and yet he knows there is something intrinsically wrong with the current so-called Republican Party of the United States. Well, I think that they certainly, and thank you, Doug, for your call. I okay. think that they certainly uh, have some some soul searching to do in that party, in the future of the party, as far as whether it will, in fact, be the party of Trump or whether it will uh, sort of morph into a hybrid or whether it will go in a, a completely different direction. That's something we could look at on a future program as well. It's, it is something that uh, that I've thought about, and I think a lot of a lot of people here uh, have thought about. I believe we have one more caller. Now try to squeeze that caller in. Uh, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? It's Jeff from Queens. Hey, what's going on? Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. You know something? I uh, was listening to the last two calls, and prior to that, I caught sort of the tail end of the person you were interviewing. And I see increasingly, as years go by, what really disturbs me about shows is that they're basically a one-opinion scenario. Like for, and, you know, a lot of people, like even your last caller, you know, he's basically, from the way I see him, just has his, uh, you know, his blinders on because basically he just listens to one side. And, you know, Obama said the same thing. Obama said the problem is is that people listen basically to what they agree with. And, you know, nobody questioned this woman in terms of, well, you know, what happened with Trump? Four years of lies. None of it proven. And yet we only hear about you know, as you're expressing what Trump has done. And this is the saddest state of this country. We, we don't get full arguments, so to speak. Do you, um, do you, expect, that to, do you expect that to change in, in 2022? Or do you think that this is just where really we're going to be for I, a while? I think this is where it makes it so that ultimately the media does prove itself to be our enemy, both sides. I do find with conservative media that they're a little bit more analytical and uh, seeking in terms of opposing views, whereas, you know, uh, when you look at the Democratic Party, the people who they got in there and the things that are going on in the country is due, due to them, you know, I can't see how anybody can just go with just one side of listening to them. I really can't see it. So that's basically all I have to say. And I think the country's in trouble. 
Okay, well, thank you so much for your, for your call. And I think that, see, again, it's, it's great when people call in because that gives me more and more ideas for programs that we can do here uh, with Jeff. You know, there is a whole, uh, there is a whole sort of, uh, sphere of thought that asks, is, uh, uh, is journalistic objectivity dead, but also, uh, should it be resurrected? Is there a point to it? And I think it's very interesting when we look at where people get their information, whether they get it from more progressive sources, more conservative sources. Uh, you know, are we looking at sort of two different realities? And should uh, should reporters try to sort of walk this central uh, center line um, and stay stay in the middle? Or should people report and present information from an openly uh, partisan standpoint, which if you think about the number of newspapers that there used to be in New York City, um, at least one of which I have worked for, worked for for a very long time, but there used to be a proliferation of newspapers in New York City with all kinds of different overt political stances. I wonder if we are headed back in that direction. Um, definitely looking forward to talking more about that. We do have to wrap up for now. The hour went quick. Definitely stay tuned, though. We have another great show coming up next Thursday. I'll be here with you again. And I'll be joined by two reporters who will help us take one final look back at the year in news in New York City. We're going to be hearing from Matt Troutman, who's on the citywide beat for Patch. And then we're going to talk to Larry McShane, a longtime rewrite man for my alma mater, the Daily News. I want to thank you for being here with us today. One more reminder, your contribution to help keep free speech radio alive here on WBAI tax deductible. Please go to WBAI.org today to support the Tower Fund. That's WBAI.org. I want to thank today's guests, Grace Panetta and Harry Siegel. Thanks, of course, to our engineer, Reggie, and special thanks to you, our listeners. If you missed any part of the program, you can hear it in full by subscribing to Driving Forces via Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or you can just check the archive section of WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This has been Driving Forces. We'll be back with you soon, and we hope you have a safe, happy, and healthy holiday weekend. Stay tuned to WBAI for the evening news. See you on the radio. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, co-host of Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. Every week, Jeff Simmons and I work to bring you the best conversations about politics and public policy in the greatest city in the world. But here's something you may not know. It costs $17,000 a month to pay the rent on our broadcast tower at Four Times Square. That's right, $17,000 a month just to stay on the air for you. That's why we're asking for your help. Please go to towerfund.wbai.org and give as generously as you can to help keep free speech community radio alive. It's easy to donate and it only takes a minute. Every donation helps WBAI stay on your FM dial with great programming about current events, music, culture, the arts, and much more. We appreciate your support. Please go to towerfund.wbai.org today and show your support for the best in free speech radio. Because the one thing a radio station doesn't need is a silent night.